Good morning, everybody. How are you today? Awesome. I, actually, I'm not really sure that I was able to pick out particular words, but I think there was good and great and okay and wonderful and all that. Awesome. I'm, I'm glad that you're all those things. If, if, if you're not okay, that's okay too. But um, I'm glad that you're here. My name's Tim. I'm the lead minister here at Markle Church of Christ. And uh, I have the privilege and honor of uh, doing this amongst other things. And we're going to study uh, the Word together. And as Nick pointed out, we're going to be in Habakkuk. Say that three times. We'll do a spelling test later, as, as he said. Um, it's a, it, we're, we're, we're calling the series Silence. I'm going to tell you out of the gate, it's a bit of a misnomer. It, it could be called the perception of silence. But that doesn't sound as flashy as the one word, silence. Because as we're going to discover as we look in Habakkuk and, and, and the prophet's experience, his conversation with God, God is not silent. But oftentimes in life, when we're not receiving the word or the actions or the things that we want to hear and see and, and all those things, it can feel like silence because we're not getting the response we want. And so, uh, as, we'll, as we'll dig into Habakkuk over these next few weeks, uh, we'll see that. But I want to start out with a favorite passage of mine, a passage. I don't know if you can do that. It's not like it's Bible verses. A portion from the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I've ever read it before. There's a dialogue between Lucy, Susan, and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And it goes something like this. Actually, it goes exactly like this, because I'm reading it. Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I almost just did that in a British accent, which would have been good there. I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This is a great thought for us to keep in our minds this morning as we study through the book of Habakkuk. As Aslan is described, so is true of God. He is not safe, but he is good. I've heard it said once that one of both the safest and most dangerous places, which is a bit oxymoronic to say, to be is in the center of God's will. It's an interesting thing. I told you last week, I'm a geek, so I like comic books and comic book nerd things. And uh, 
Uh, I mentioned, I think, Spider-Man 2. But uh, I've noticed a trend in comic book movies and, and adaptations lately where there's a bit of wrestling in some of these movies with the chaos and destruction that superheroes bring when they're trying to save the world. You know, if you grew up on Superman, you know, Superman's all-powerful, right? He can do everything. He can shoot lasers out of his eyes. He can freeze things with his breath. I bet it's minty right out of the gate. Um, he can fly. He can, he can, you know, bullets can hit him, and they just, they don't phase him. Just as long as there's no kryptonite around, he's good to go. And so, you know, there's always the, you know, the hope, you know, if, if you're in danger, you call out for Superman, he comes and saves the day. And that's what we all want, right? We want a superhero that can just save the day or whatever. But in these more recent comic book movies, uh, like I'm thinking um, like the Avengers movies, for instance, there's this wrestling of the destruction that comes about from superheroes. See, we all want someone to save us. It's just the thing is we don't want to get nicked along the way. We don't want to get bruised and battered and cut up. We don't want to get hurt in the process. And if any of you feel that way in life, you're not alone because the prophet Habakkuk was right there with you. The, the book of Habakkuk is very interesting. It, it, it's written uh, with the, uh, the exile to Babylon of Judah that occurred in around 587 to 586 B.C. And it's a bit of a sober read. It's very short. You could, you could read it in about 15 minutes. It's a few chapters, and uh, it's basically a dialogue. It, it stands out as a prophetic book in this way. In a, in a lot of ways, the prophetic books uh, contain the prophets uh, giving voice to God's God's will and, and God's determinations so that the people can hear what God is going to do or what God wills for them. But what makes Habakkuk unique is it's none of the dialogue to the people, but it's a dialogue between the prophet and God. It's the prophet asking questions of God, which is not something we're all so used to. If you've been in church for a long time, you know, you, you hear the gospel, you hear the good news, you hear about God, and sometimes, if you ask too many questions, you can feel a little shut down. But it turns out, God likes to deal with people that ask questions. If you read the book of Job, Job is the victorious one at the end. It's not his friends that try to give him all the answers, it's the Job that asks the questions in light of his misery and his trials and his circumstances. And Habakkuk doesn't face the same fate as Job in that much longer book, but he does realize that things are difficult. And when he asks God why things aren't being made better, the solution that God tells Habakkuk that's going to come about doesn't give him any comfort. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the first chapter of Habakkuk because in this particular chapter, we get to see a, a brief back and forth between Habakkuk and God, with Habakkuk questioning God, God supplying a, a way to fix the problem, and it's not a way that Habakkuk wants to hear. It's not the solution that he wants. In fact, in his mind, it's just going to get worse. And before we jump in, I'm going to give one more analogy. 
We've been watching Lego Masters in our house. Mainly because my son's into Legos, and it's like a safe show to watch around him, but that we can actually stomach. I'm sorry, kids' TV for hours. I might be losing my mind. I probably already lost my mind before, but... But no, we've been watching Lego Masters, and one of the interesting things is it's like a cooking competition, but with Legos, so far less serious, and yet it gets made very, very serious on here. And the the people that are judging the Lego builds come around, and they check in as the people are doing the build. And every now and then, the people that are building up the Legos, they're talking to the judges, and they realize uh, they kind of missed the assignment a little bit. And so they've got to completely deconstruct the build or make it new. And if you've been meticulously spending hours putting little bricks on top of little bricks, that doesn't sound fun. So if you've ever played with Legos before, especially if you have a four-year-old that assigns you Legos that you can use, and you need the one over there that he has said is in his pile Just that sense of, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I don't know if I can fix this. I don't know if I can handle what needs to be done to make it right. Extrapolate that 50-fold, and we can get into the mental territory of Habakkuk. So let's start. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to get one verse in and I'm going to stop because I want to hang on a word here for a moment. Verse 1 says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. This word oracle is an interesting one. It's a word that we often think about used interchangeably with prophet or or a word of prophecy. Uh, If you've ever seen the Matrix movies, there's the oracle in the Matrix Those movies got weird. But anyway, there's the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Well, interestingly enough, this word here in its original language form in Hebrew, it actually can also mean burden. And if you just were to imagine, I don't have the technical capability to make this magically change into the word burden, so I just want you to use your imagination here. If you can imagine reading the burden that Habakkuk the prophet saw, it really gives us a good summary statement for how the rest of this short little book is going to go. And Habakkuk is a prophet, so he's somebody, a prophet is someone that uh, declares the word of God. We oftentimes think of prophets and prophecies as future tellers, and sometimes there's elements of that in prophecy, but that is more of a minor note in what it means to be prophetic. To be prophetic is to say, thus saith the Lord. You are making a declaration for the people of God to hear, that they need to perk up their ears, they need to pay heed and attention to what God is saying, and not only that, to put it into practice or do something with it. Because God is calling you to change. And so because of his role as prophet, Habakkuk sees what God wants to show him, and it is burdensome. And that's the story that we're going to be told or the conversation that we're going to get let in on. So to carry on, I'll break up in spots so that we can see the difference in the dialogue here. But starting in verse 2, it says, Lord, 
How long will I call for help and you not listen? I cry out to you, violence, but you don't deliver us. Why do you show me injustice and look at anguish so that devastation and violence are before me? There is strife and conflict abounds. The, dis- the instruction is ineffective. Justice does not endure because the wicked surround the righteous. Justice becomes warped. Now, I want to pause here for a moment. So this is Habakkuk issuing his complaint, his question, his inquiry to God. God, why is it that I look around me? And by the way, he's looking around not at the nations, not at the other peoples, but the people of Judah, his own people, his fellow Israelites, his fellow people of God, and he's looking around, and all he sees is wickedness and violence. It says here that he, he mentions the instruction is ineffective. He means the hearing of the law isn't producing change for people. They're going on and doing destructive things, acting treacherously. And he's asking out loud, God, why are you just sitting back silent while this calamity continues to unfold. Maybe you're not a person that looks at the world around and and asks God about the big questions all the time. Maybe you are. I do sometimes. But I'd be willing to bet that if you're a person that prays at all, that you have asked God the why questions within your own little sphere of life. Why is, why is my loved one ill? Why is my boss making life hard for me? Why isn't my friend coming to my aid when I'm having a struggle? Why haven't I heard from them for a while? Have you ever asked questions like that? Maybe even sometimes good things that occur, but not in ways you expect, make it hard to deal with those things, and you just don't like the way things are unfolding, and you go to God, and you say, God, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for this, but. But I wish it could have been a little bit this way or a little bit that way. If you've been there, you can relate to Habakkuk. Because he's not just talking about the world out there, he's talking about his own people. Who knows, he could be talking about his own family members. We don't actually know a whole lot about Habakkuk. We know that he was doing his prophetic work at the time of Jeremiah and Nahum and, and other prophets, and we, we know that he's at this time where this, this destruction of Jerusalem is about to unfold, but beyond that we don't know much. So we have to kind of fill in gaps based off of the dire situation that's there. But we do know that he looks around at his own people and he sees this conflict and his first question is, God, why? Why are you not acting? Why are you not there? Which is an intriguing question to ask. Because if you theologically know anything about God, he is always there. 
So again, as I said before, we can call this serious silence, but it's really the perception of silence. Just like when we say, God, why aren't you there? It's a perception. We feel like he's not there because things aren't going the way that we would like him to make them go. But he is there. And he's not only there, he listens to the question. Because in the next verse that we're about to look at, he answers Habakkuk. He says, the Lord responds, he says, Look among the nations and watch. Be astonished and stare because something is happening in your days that you wouldn't believe even if told. I'm about to rouse the Chaldeans, that bitter and impetuous nation which travels throughout the earth to possess dwelling places it does not own. The Chaldean is dreadful and fearful. He makes his own justice and dignity. His horses are faster than leopards. They are quicker than wolves of the evening. His horsemen charge forward. His horsemen come from far away. They fly in to devour swiftly like an eagle. They come for violence. The horde will all their faces set toward the desert. He takes captives like sand. He makes fun of kings. Rulers are ridiculous to him. He laughs at every fortress. Then he piles up dirt and takes it. He passes through like the wind and evades. But he will be held guilty. The one whose strength is his God. So here's God's big solution. I don't know if you know this, but Chaldeans... That word can be used interchangeably for the Babylonians. God's response is, yeah, Habakkuk, that's, I, I hear you. I've, I've been paying attention to how bad the people are. They're rotten. You're absolutely right. And guess what? I'm going to do something about it. You know that big, bad, horrible, no good nation that thinks that they can come in and pounce on everybody and do whatever they please? And they're big, mighty, and scary, and they can basically kill everyone and wipe them off the face of the earth. And they're completely uh, against everything that you and I stand for. And they're just horrible, no good, rotten, everything under the sun that you can think of to say about them bad. Dr. Seuss would have a heyday. Yeah, you know that group? I'm going to raise them up and I'm going to have them come in and wipe out the people. What? That's God's plan. I've heard you. I'm going to bring justice upon those of you that are being unjust. And you're not going to be able to do anything about it. Because the Babylonians, well, they can only be stopped by one. God. Oh, and by the way, did you catch the conclusion? He says as he's describing this Chaldean as a, as a type for the rest of the Babylonians, God says at the end, but he will be held guilty. So the instrument of judgment that God is going to bring upon Judah is also going to be guilty for the judgment that gets brought on Judah. But the judgment is coming. I know if you woke up this morning hoping to get a real happy story, I'm sorry about Habakkuk. But it's important that we go through the entire council of Scripture. So that's God's big response. Now, I don't know about you, but if 
you get really hot and bothered about people that are doing things the wrong way, people that are mistreating others, people that are rotten and no good, even if they're own, your own people, sometimes, maybe it's just in the privacy of your mind, you get so hot about this that you think, I want them to get theirs. Am I the only one that's ever thought that before? I bet you probably have at some point. Maybe someone was doing something on the job they shouldn't have done, and you thought, yeah, I hope they get caught, and I hope they pay the consequences of that. We all think that we want that. Habakkuk, no doubt, probably thought that that's what he wanted. And then God tells him the plan. And this is Habakkuk's response. Lord, aren't you ancient, my God, my Holy One? Don't let us die. Lord, you put the Chaldean here for judgment. Rock, you established him as a rebuke. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You are unable to look at disaster. Why would you look at the treacherous or keep silent when the wicked swallows one who is more righteous? I want you to remember that phrase. Why would you look at the treacherous and keep silent when the wicked swallows one who is more righteous? Habakkuk is playing a game we often play. I'll get back to that in a moment. You made humans like the fish of the sea, like creeping things with no one to rule over them. The Chaldean brings all of them up with a fish hook. He drags them away with a net. He collects them in his fishing net. Then he rejoices and celebrates. Therefore, he sacrifices his net. He burns incense to his fishing nets because due to them, his portion grows fat and his food becomes luxurious. Should he continue to empty his net and continue to slay nations without sparing them? Now, I don't have this verse because it goes into chapter 2, which we're going to get into, but I'm going to go ahead and just read it to you real quickly. This is how he concludes. It won't be on the screen. He says, I will take my post. I will position myself on the fortress. I will keep watch to see what the Lord says to me and how he will respond to my complaint. God, my people aren't doing the right thing, and I'm getting so mad at them, and I just wish that you would come in and do something to set them right. Okay, Habakkuk, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to send the Babylonians, and I'm going to set them right. And those that, you know, are, you know, still after me, I'm going to exile them instead of wipe them out, and then we'll do the whole remnant thing later or whatever. Is that good for you? He doesn't actually ask if it's good for him, because it doesn't matter, because that's God's plan. Anyway, Habakkuk doesn't like that plan. So he plays a different game and follows up with another complaint. And the complaint that he follows up with is this. Well, yeah, our people are kind of bad right now, but are you really going to use even worse people? Because they're wicked, and in comparison, even though I just said our people are bad, they're righteous instead of those wicked people. There's always someone worse than you. And far be it from God in Habakkuk's mind to use the powerful and wicked Babylonians as his instrument of judgment. And not only that, but his complaint runs deeper. 
Because not, as, not only is he dissatisfied with God's plan of bringing judgment at the hands of the Babylonians, but he's well aware that the Babylonians will look at the situation as another mere conquest to further enrich themselves. Did you catch the language here? Therefore, he being the Chaldean sacrifices to his net, he burns incense to his fishing nets because due to them his portion grows fat and his food becomes luxurious. Should he get to continue to empty his net and continue to slay nations without sparing them? Are you really going to let this power, this ugly power, continue to run rampant just to fill your demand for judgment? See, Habakkuk liked the idea of his people getting theirs to set them right, but he doesn't want it to come at the hands of the power of the world at the time to make it richer and more mighty and more powerful and even less destructible. Notice, by the way, what God doesn't do in this moment, in this conversation, at least not at this point. When Habakkuk first cries out and complains about his own people, God doesn't give him a nice word to calm him down. He instead just tells him what the plan is. And, and by the way, you should know that when God starts out telling Habakkuk his plan, he tells him to look and watch. And why would he tell a prophet to look and watch what he's about to do? Well, do you remember what I said prophet means first and foremost? It's the person that says, thus saith the Lord. See, in Habakkuk, we don't get the thus saith the Lord part from Habakkuk, but it's going to be expected and incumbent upon him to go to the people and say, thus saith the Lord, if you don't turn around, the Babylonians are coming. Have you ever had to have a hard conversation with somebody before? Anybody enjoy those? No? I don't either. I'm not raising my hand because I do. No, what most of us do when we have to have a hard conversation, maybe with a family member or a friend or a coworker, or, especially if you know that the conversation's coming, you get sweaty palms, you get a little nervous, you want to make sure you're clear, but you say it nicely, you don't want to upset anybody. You hope if they say something hard to you that you can handle it, but deep down you're seething inside that they said something. How do you think Habakkuk is feeling right now? He not only disagrees with the plan that God has, but now he's going to have the unenviable task of telling the very people that he was just whining about that judgment is coming for them because of the things he was whining about them doing. Do you think he's in a fun position? No, he's not. No, he is absolutely not. So that's how the book of Habakkuk starts in the first chapter. That is why it is the burden of Habakkuk. Not only is his circumstance burdensome. Nobody that loves their own people wants to see their people go the wrong direction. 
And even if they want their people that are going in the wrong direction to be course corrected, nobody wants to see that course correction be destructive. Oftentimes when we want a solution, we don't always like what the solution entails. If you're on Lego Masters and you've started to build things the wrong way and the judge comes around and tells you you're doing it wrong, it's no fun to realize that you've got to break down all of your work and rebuild it again. (laughs) Everybody wants a superhero until they realize the hero and their conquest to save the day might tear down a building or slash a car in half with their laser eyes. And someone might get a bruise from shrapnel hitting their knee. Even though Superman saved the day. And that's the thing about God. God is fully aware that since that first moment in the garden, all have sinned And fallen short of his glory. And God in his grace never, ever, 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 ever wanted to leave people in that sinful, depraved, apart from him state. Instead, he wants to redeem them so that they can be, as we did last month, set apart for him. But sometimes... When something is broken, you can't just wave a magic wand and fix it. I mean, God could, but the thing is, then he'd be taking free will away. So sometimes you've got to break it down to build it back up again. And that can happen on a worldwide level. That can happen on the level of an entire people group. And that it can even happen on the internal level. Anybody else had a struggle in their lives that was hard to root out? It took God a long time to get you, and you look back and you say, I can't believe how far along God has made me on this particular issue. But gosh, I hated going through everything to get here. But God was able to do it by breaking it down and building you back up. But wait, there's more. See, God's plan, God's plan of rescue does have collateral damage. And in the case of the story of Habakkuk, that is the case. And he's bearing the burden of not only that message, but having to be the deliverer of the message. But when Jesus comes along, and he begins to preach and teach and perform miracles and usher in the kingdom and make disciples and all the wonderful things that Jesus says and does, when he gets to that moment and to that hour where one of the core reasons he came begins to happen. He knows his time has come. He's burdened. He knows that in order to save, something must be broken before it can be raised up, before it can be 
restored. One of my all-time favorite passages, one of the things that personally for me endears me to Jesus amongst the fact that he's the Savior and Lord, it's actually the human component. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 36 through 46, in the middle of the passion narrative, we get this story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It reads as follows. It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. He said to the disciples, Stay here while I go and pray over there. When he took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, that's James and John, he began to feel sad and anxious. Then he said to them, I'm very sad. It's as if I'm dying. Stay here and keep alert with me. Then he went a short distance further and fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it's possible, take this cup of suffering away from me. However, not what I want, but what you want. He came back to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Couldn't you stay alert one hour with me? Stay alert and pray so that you won't give in to temptation. The spirit is eager, but the flesh is weak. A second time he went away and prayed, My father, if it's not possible that this cup be taken away unless I drink it, then let it be what you want. Again he came and found them sleeping. Their eyes were heavy with sleep, but he left them and again went and prayed the same words for the third time. And when he came to his disciples and said to them, Will you sleep and rest all night? Look, the time has come for the Son of Man or the human one to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. Look, here comes my betrayer. Even Jesus, the Son of God, perfect, sinless, spotless, God in the flesh, in his moment, in his hour, where death awaited him, and not just any death, the cruel, tormentous death of Roman crucifixion. What he wanted was his father's will. And what he really wanted was his father's will to not be able to not have to give that suffering. But in addition to that, he wanted his friends around him. He was sad and anxious, it says. Nervous, scared. And one of the accounts, it says that his sweat became like drops of blood. It was so profuse. See, here's the the thing that we need to remember when we think about the story of Habakkuk and really the story of faith, which is really what the story of Habakkuk is going to be about. It's that faithfulness to God is tough, but you never go it alone. Faith in God is tough, but you never go it alone. And the reason that you never go it alone isn't because the people around you will always show up when you need them. In the case of Jesus, his three besties couldn't even stay asleep when he just wanted them to keep alert. In the case of Habakkuk, everyone around him, it seemed, was rotten to the core. Sure, he had friends. 
He didn't necessarily want to participate in what they were doing. He felt very alone. He felt so alone that when he prayed his complaint to God, he prayed as if God wasn't even there listening. He prayed as if God were silent on the issue. You know, Jesus, when he's on the cross, will quote from the Psalms and say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There are two truths here. One, faithfulness to God is tough, but you never go it alone because God never leaves you. But number two, if you've ever been in a situation in life where you feel like God has left you alone, you are in good company. Because Habakkuk felt the same way, and even Jesus on the cross, the Son of God, felt the same way. Even though he never lost sight of the truth. And neither did Habakkuk. Because you don't want to know the truth about Habakkuk's prayer to God, his complaint to God. He may have felt like God was silent, but you don't lodge a complaint to someone that isn't there. And here's the great thing about God. Much to the chagrin of people that worry if they say the wrong thing or ask the wrong questions, that God's going to smite them or strike them with a lightning bolt. He doesn't. What he wants is a relationship with you, even if it comes at a high cost. The cost of God's plan coming to fruition is high. At the stage that Habakkuk is in, the high cost is the exile of his people. But that's one step in the journey to get to Jesus. And no doubt is the cost of our salvation high because the cost occurred on a cross. And that's why the message of a book like Habakkuk is so important, and that's why we're going to go through it this month. Because it's important to see that even in the low points of life, even when we question if God is there, even if things aren't going the way we'd like, even if we feel like there are enemies surrounding us at every edge and every corner, we are not alone. And God is there to hear us when we call out and cry out. And he will never abandon us. I hope that when you came in, that you got a communion packet. Every week, we take communion here as a church body. First and foremost, because Jesus told his disciples on the night he was betrayed to do this in remembrance of him. But on a much larger scale, when we take communion, we celebrate and we proclaim the grace of God that while we're yet sinners, while things feel destructive around us, while things get hard, while people don't always do the things we'd like, and while our circumstances don't always go the way we would like, that God is still with us. They named him Emmanuel because God is with us. God is so with us that he sent his one and only son to pay the price for our sins so that we could have abundant life with him. It came at a high cost, but to him, it was worth it. 
So I invite you to take a moment and reflect on God's grace, even in the midst of hardship. And after we take that moment, we will take communion together as a church family. body which is given for us. And in the same way, I invite you to take and drink from this cup. This is his blood which is poured out for us. Please pray with me. Dear Lord God, for those of us that have even walked a mile or a minute, we know that while life is good, life is hard. Whether we experience that hardship on the day-to-day and at the ground level, or whether we just look out into the expanse and see the turmoil and sin and destruction in the world, we know that life is not easy in its fallen state. And, uh, We know that in your love for us, that you sent your one and only Son, not just to save us, but to change us and to change the world and to make us align with you in word and deed for all of our days so that we can be light and spread light amongst the darkness as he is light, light in the darkness. And God, we thank you for hard messages like uh, those in these prophetic books because we realize what's at stake and how serious our sin and fallenness is. But we thank you for the fact that despite that, you do not abandon us, that you show us grace, mercy, love, and that you're willing to pay the high cost to bring us closer to you and to let us have life to the full. And we thank you for that life and I pray that you will help us to be light and life spreaders in this world in obedience to your son Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.